I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Capehart. May 25th marked the third anniversary of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Inspired by Floyd's life and the promise of an equitable future in America, the Minnesota Orchestra commissioned composer Carlos Simon to create a musical piece reflecting these ideals. The work is called Breath. In this conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on May 17th, Simon talks about how he and librettist Mark Bamuthi Joseph went about composing their powerful work. We took three trips over the span of a year and a half or so. And one of the first places we went was George Ford Square. And uh, we spent a lot of time there, I think four hours, you know, just kind of sitting in the space and uh, just talking to people. People would drive by and speak and say hello. And so that informed you know, the the work, it's like these are everyday people and like what happens when the cameras leave? So let's just start at the beginning. Briefly explain what breath is and also why it's styled so specifically. Sure, well, uh, the piece in itself is it's in memory of George Floyd. Uh, it's, it's it, but it's not, focusing on the moment, uh, the horrific moment, uh, and, and these 10 minutes where there's a knee on the neck. Uh, the, the piece, it's really about, um, you know, the systematic racism that we, we experience in America, um, and also what we do after this, you know, the breadth of the task. And uh, Bamuthi, Mark Bamuthi and Joseph, Joseph uh, my collaborator and librettist for the piece, uh, one of the things that we wanted to explore is uh, how do we deal with this, 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 this trauma, this, this, um, this issue that we are plagued with in our country and the world, this issue, issue of systematic racism, um, and how do we deal with it in on the musical level, you know, on an artistic stage, uh, if you will, and uh, the piece is, we wanted to use the piece as a platform to discuss and to deal with these issues and, and to give a call to action, if you will, to to those who hear it and, and in the hall, but abroad, you know, just to give us a sense of where are we going, where are we going to with this, with this, um, how do we make a change? And that's, that's a, really the, the task that we set out to do with when we wrote this piece. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I found very interesting uh, in terms of how um, you and Mark Bermuthi Joseph went about doing this is you didn't just get together and decide to sit down and create this, this music, this piece for the Minnesota Orchestra. You went to Minneapolis and you talked to the community. I'm fascinated by that. How does talking to the community inform the 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 piece that you delivered yeah sure i mean it was an important process for us uh we took three trips over the span of uh, a year and a half or so and one of the first places we went was george ford square and uh we spent a lot of time there i think four hours you know just kind of sitting in the space and uh just talking to people honestly and you know i what i discovered was just sitting time just spending time there it was the neighborhood in itself it was not much it was not much different from the neighborhood that i grew up in you know we there'd be times where we sit on a porch and have some iced tea and just 
you know, and then people would drive by and then say, hey, how you doing? How you, how's your mama doing? You know, and then and it would be like that. And so people in the community were still there, even though they were, the people like Mark and I were just visiting. Um, but the, the the body of the community was was still there and they were a part of it. And we were talking to them and, and then people would drive by and speak and say hello. And so that informed, you know, the the work it's like these are everyday people and like what happens when the cameras leave you know we all experienced you know what happened um you know I, in dc i I lived there and, and we i saw what was happening on the news right and um that that has a certain narrative but being on the ground and talking to people and getting all these details all these nuances and 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 when i sat down to write the piece um a lot of that informed the work. A lot of that informed the music. And, you know, this, Mark will say the same thing. You know, we, we've been talking back and forth about creating the work, but being on the ground and, and just walking around and talking to people, that really helped us to write the piece. Hmm. So you, I, I don't know if you know this, but I, I went to college in Minnesota. I visited uh, George Floyd um, Square uh, now two years ago. So I can visualize what, what you're talking about. And I also remember uh, George Floyd Square before it was George Floyd Square um, from visits to, to Minneapolis. And I am, I am curious, Carlos, how, how do you translate the pain, the frustration, disappointment, anger, uh, maybe even hope in everydayness of the people that, that you met how do you translate that into music? Yeah, that's a difficult question. It's, and I, I don't know if I have a, a direct answer, but um, it, it's in a way I do consider myself as a conduit. You know, it's not only channeling something from a higher power, but also channeling the energy around me that I've embodied. Um, and, you know, when I sit down at the piano, I'm literally trying to turn the analytical side off that's saying, oh, this is a C major chord, this should go to an F sharp or D major chord. It's it's none of that. I, I am really just kind of thinking that I'm just embodying the energy that I feel and into music. And I, as I literally, as I sit at the piano, it, 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 it something takes over. And um, it, it really is something that I, I can't explain, Jonathan. And um, I, I, I wish I could, but I, I'm a, so if you, I play jazz, I also play gospel music, which is an art form that is heavily based in improvisation. Yeah. And so I'm using that tool of improvisation to channel the music and um, some kind of way it comes out. And this piece in itself, it, 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 I, it, the music came out of me uh, mm -hmm. and I, it felt like uh, I was channeling something different there. So um, I don't know if I answered your question or not, but that, no, no, no. that's the process of things. No, I, I, I totally get what you're saying. And maybe, I mean, I'm not an artist like you're an artist. I'm you know, just an opinion writer. But I have had those moments where I've sat down with people and I've interviewed people and just the emotion of the moment or of, of the subject matter. And I'm, I'm trying to be analytical and trying to, how do I get, how do I write this? But then something takes over and I just write. And it comes and it comes out. But you're doing that via music, which to my mind is infinitely harder. You know, I want to bring something up that um, 
Mark Bamuthi Joseph said when talking about breadth, he says, breadth considers American promise and American history written by two people that have an extraordinary relationship with American possibility. From your vantage point, what is the American promise? Wow, heavy question. It's, it, it's, it's, that's, it's a lot. Um, and I believe that the American promise is, is one that we, we if, if, if I'm a black artist, for instance, I, I, I want to be able to be able to pursue my artistic journey without the issue of race uh, being a factor or you know, pursuing it without the idea of um, capitalism and that issue of me being black, being able to, to kind of tap in um, and, and being um, heard not only as a black artist, but as a composer, as an artist who is reflecting our times. You know, I, I have this quote that um, yeah, I, I subscribe to, and it's Nina Simone. It's Simone's it quote, know it well. Yes, uh, Yes, he says. He says, you know, artists should should reflect the times in which they live, and I I I, I want to be able to, to to do that, you know. And of course, we we are living in a very very tumultuous time in our country and the world, and um, it, it, it's difficult. But I think the role of an artist is to show us what we are what we are experiencing in our world, and the American promise I think lends itself to the artists to be able to do that freely. Uh, and not just, I'm, 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 of course I'm speaking from my, my side as an artistic, you know, uh, uh, writer, but you know, everybody has their duty. Everybody is gifted with something. Um, and I believe that tapping into that gifting and using your gift for better change, that is the promise um, that, that we should be able to do, no matter what our artistic giving or whatever our gifting is. You know, you said you were unsure about working on breath because, and I'm gonna throw your words back at you, you said writing a piece in response to such a horrific event was something I wasn't prepared to do. It had been done before and I had already written pieces that responded to Black Lives Matter and police brutality. How was this project different? Well, and that's that's the that's one of the reasons I said yes because I, I talked to Bamuthi, um, and he says, "Listen, I think we could have something different. We can we can we could um, really 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 um, try to look for the future, um, not to focus on those those ten minutes that we we all ex you know saw on t on TV, but to look past that, you know, and and to to include it." Yes, we aren't going to talk about it in the piece, but what is the breadth of the task at hand? It's a call to action. It's 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 what do we all have to do collectively in order to make a better future? Um, one of the, the the most powerful things that he says, and it's the last movement of the of the work, is um, so much work has been done, but who does the work that's still left? And that's that's the last line that we hear in the in the piece. So in, in a way, we we are Bamuthi and I. We wanted to um, for the audience to leave with something, leave with a call of action. What is my duty? What is my purpose in making the world a better place? 
um, and, and to combat racism. You know, if, if racism is systematic, anti-racism also has to be systematic. That, and so what is your part in that, in that system? How would you describe um, breadth for those who haven't seen it yet? Because didn't it just debut? Didn't it just premiere? It's tomorrow, tomorrow. Yeah, we have the oh, debut tomorrow. Yeah. Oh, it is Thursday, May 18th. So, so, yeah. uh, so for who, well, let me, let me backtrack. Who are your, your inspirations when it comes to composing? Like, do you have a, do you have a favorite composer or musician who, for whom that like, you go to that well when seeking inspiration? Well, it's it really depends uh, on what, what I'm what I'm writing, uh, but I I love gospel music. Uh, there's nothing like gospel. I grew up with listening gospel music. In fact, we couldn't listen to anything else in our in our house uh, yeah, other than gospel. Your dad's a preacher. There are three generations of preacher, right? In your family. Three generations of preacher. Yes, yes. And so we very conservative house. Um, we could maybe sneak in a little jazz, you know, maybe a little classical and then in fact that's when i that's what opened my ears to you know with the, the one the ch off chance that it was classical music playing on the radio in the car and i was like what does that sound you know it's incredible um and so that led me down the path of discovering you know beethoven and and, and rachmaninoff and tchaikovsky oh, i love russian composers i love russian composers shostakovich come on yes shostakovich i love it it's something in in the music that's it's just rich um, and I, I gravitate to that, you know, to that sound, um, but also blending that those sound of the Western classical idiom with gospel music and jazz and the music that I grew up with and I heard every day, all the time. And so that's really been, you know, the, 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 my mission to kind of blend these worlds. And, and um, so any composer that can do that and has been doing that. Um, I, I'm thinking about composers like Aaron Copeland, who's, who's known for, you know, uh, the American sound, you know, and classical music, but also composers like William Grant Steele, who are African-American, the dean, is considered the dean of African-American composers, uh, Florence Price, um, and these are composers who are using music of the people, you know, folk tunes, if you will, and bring it to the concert stage and, and, and bring it to um, uh, orchestras and classical music. So that, 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 that is where I'm, you know, those are my inspirations, you know, following the model. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. 
Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. Monarchmoney.com slash podcast. So I, I asked that question because I'm trying to get a sense of what breath uh, will sound like. Um, it, it's four movements, but I have now a better understanding um, between, and I cannot wait to hear this mix of gospel, which I'm sure I'll hear the influences in there. But, you know, Rachmaninoff and Shostakovich, you know, those are acquired tastes. And I love them because they're big, they're dramatic, they're sweeping, they're almost, they're almost cinematic. And then you throw in, you throw in Aaron Copeland, and it seems to be, it's your work, so you tell me if I'm wrong, but is that what you're going for with, with breath, is this deeply American, deeply African-American, but with a, not but, with a sweep and a range that, that, go, that soars beyond the, the, the subject matter that's inspired this, this work? Sure. Well, the piece, uh, the forces that I have is massive. You know, we have rehearsal yesterday and 250 people on stage. Oh, right. Cool. So we have the orchestra, which is about 80 plus, 90 plus people on stage. Uh, and we have a choir, which is uh, 100, about 150 or so. And then right dead center is Mark Bamuthi Joseph. He is a spoken word artist. And really, he is the griot of, of the uh, uh, he's speaking and you know the soloist he's dead front and center and i built the piece around him and what he's speaking um so musically speaking yes you will hear uh very like sweeping uh, the orchestral angular melodic lines in the in the uh the, in, the, in the in the orchestra which is you know very akin to uh, tchaikovsky and rachmaninoff um, but it's it can be it, I have to pare it down. I kind of go in with the gloves on because I want the text heard. Um, and and uh, uh, well, sorry, with the gloves off, I'm making a boxing uh, metaphor. <laughs> uh, but let, let just allowing the text to come through because I do want people to hear. You know, it's not just about the music in itself. I, there are moments where I I bring in the orchestra and it's just the orchestra by itself playing. Uh, in fact, one of the works. Uh, in fact, I wrote a piece called Elegy in 2014 uh, for Trayvon Martin, and, and it was one of the first pieces that I wrote that was, uh, I guess, socially driven uh, to like uh, social justice. And it it made sense for the piece to live within this work because it was for Trayvon Martin. And, and that was in 2014. And here we are, you know, years later, and the list of people of, of of black bodies that have been murdered, um, it, it has grown exponentially. So it made sense for the piece to live in the work um, for George Floyd, and uh, and that piece is very it it, it has the very lush lines. It has it's very romantic in the nature, um, and it's just for strings, and so very intimate. Um, so we, we this I wanted to pair it really really bring it down there. Um, of course, there are moments where it's just Mark, you know, like he has this this idea. I mean, it feels like he's like in a coffee club, you know. So um, <clears throat> I have the orchestra play very lightly, 
um, almost like jazzy blues. They're bending, they're, they're you know bending the the strings and 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 the horns are sort of like in a very Duke Ellington sound. Um, uh, but so the piece in itself has a lot of uh, varying styles, varying styles from ranging from Tchaikovsky to John Williams to Duke Ellington to um, and so many others, but I, 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 I'd like to consider myself as um, a composer who likes to draw on different idioms and musical styles. Well, we've mentioned his, you've mentioned his name many, many times, Bamuthi. This isn't your first time working on, on a piece together. What's it like working with him and why, does, why is he seemingly the perfect musical partner? Yeah. Uh, I, that's my brother. Like we, I feel like we share a brain, you know, and he, I met him on um, the, we were working together on a concert um, in Arizona and the concert was around uh, classical music and the idea of classical music being, um, I, I guess a conglomerate of so many different things and how many, uh, how the stories can be told on, on the classical stage many different stories and including composers of color and women and, 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 you know, so many other composers that you don't hear about now other than Beethoven and Bach and, you know, the standards. And we connected on that level. And I was like, you, we have to work together. And, and at that point I had just moved to DC and he had moved, to, he was there and at the Kennedy center. And we, um, uh, got the position at the Kennedy Center a couple years later, and we started working um, on a piece that was around this idea of social justice. And really, both of that really to answer your question, and we both had this platform for social justice, and and using art as a means of um, of of telling a story and and hopefully you know giving some change. Uh, but we are on another level. We're both Morehouse graduates. Shout out to Morehouse and Morehouse College. And uh, even though he's 10 years older than I am, I, I have to get on him about that. But um, <laughs> we, we we share that. We share that. And of course, you know, it, 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 it's storytelling. Right. Right. You know, um, you are a Grammy nominated composer. Your album Requiem for the Enslaved was nominated for the 2023 uh, Grammy for Best Contemporary Classical Composition. And the project was inspired by the enslaved people who were sold by Georgetown University, where you are currently serving as an assistant music professor. Talk to me about that project and how uncomfortable or uh, comfortable it was to write a piece that held the mirror up to the institution uh, you work for. Yeah, well, when I joined in 2019, um, the university was already doing work um, to understand its role in, in slavery. And um, I was, I wanted to join in the conversation um, on an artistic level, you know, and, and so I went to, um, went to the top, went to the provost, you know, and said, hey, listen, I, I, I really want to write a piece about this. And, and they were supportive. They were, they sponsored a trip to, for me to visit in the plantations down in uh, Maringouin, Louisiana, where many of those enslaved people were sold in 1838. Uh, I got a chance to take a trip there for a whole week and, you know, uh, talk to people, talk to descendants, talk to 
um, and go visit the graves where many of those those enslaved people were buried. And um, again, it's some of the same type of uh, uh, research and, and it just embodied that that emotion. But came back and I wrote the piece, and you know, I, I visited the, the archives at Georgetown and then actually seeing the bill of sale where many the, the actually the names of 272 souls were 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 listed, you know, with their ages and their um, relation to one another, one another. So looking at that bill of sale, yes, it's it's a document um, that has seen seemingly, you know, um, very trite information, but there, for me, it was a, there was a story there. There was something the humanity was in the document, and I—that's what I wanted to bring to, in the piece. It's to show, you know, what what's what is it like to be owned by a person, you know, and and to 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 feel like you are not a human, uh, and to be listed on the same document as as wheat and barley, and and having a price assigned to you, you know. So that's that was you know the the goal of the piece is to honor these men, women, and children. But also to show how slavery is linked to systematic racism mm-hmm. and, and can't get away from that. So when you went to when you went down and you visited the graves, I'm just curious, were the graves marked or were they unmarked? It's so crazy. So in in South, especially in Maringwin, um, it was two sides of the cemetery, you know, is where one side where you have the white people were, were buried, and but you have the black side and you could see the graves were sunken could barely on the black side you can barely tell you know what, what the, there was maybe like, like some headstone there sometimes but on the white side it was completely risen for some reason and it it, it was very striking to see striking to see um but i was able to see you know there was some of the descendants were able to um uh mark the graves where they knew that their their descendants were, um, and then and I, we they I, they gave right. us a tour. You know, I went with some other professors and, and some students as well. So, um, yeah, it was just barely mind boggling to see. Well, I I asked that question because um, for my MSNBC show, I did a story about a story that was on the front page uh, in the Washington Post about a black family that bought a plantation house, and it turned out that that family. Their, it, their ancestors were enslaved mm-hmm. on that plantation. And so they gave me a tour and they took me to where the, the enslaved were buried, way away from the house, just in, in the middle of some trees and yep. the sunken graves and just a rock. And depending on the size of the rock, if there was a rock, you, they kind of figured if it's a big rock, it was an adult, it was a little rock, it was, it was a baby. And just to see that with my own eyes was just to think these folks, it was as if they were thrown away. And right. so I'm wondering for you in seeing those graves, how that, how that may have moved you or impacted what you ended up composing. Yeah, well, I mean, there were a lot of these moments where I, 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 I embodied it, you know. And I, I it, there was actually one moment where I went to the actual plantation, which actually ex- still exists with sugarcane. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they went from you know, these enslaved people went from cropping tobacco in in Maryland um, to cropping sugarcane in the sweltering heat of Louisiana. And this that the, the moment where I s set foot on this plantation, it was a massive field. I mean, it had to be at least two miles, and the, it was completely. Um, it, it wasn't in, in the, the sugar cane wasn't in season, so it was completely um, flat. And I could see all the way through for two miles at least. But what's striking was was as a tree right in the dead center, in the middle of of the of the of the field. And um, along with that, uh, there was right where I was standing was a bell, which signaled that it was still there. And it, oftentimes, it you know the, the masters would ring the bell to cue a different shift in, in, in the day. And ringing that bell, imagine how terrifying that would, would sound to say, oh, it's time to go to another job in this sweltering heat, you know, and, and seeing all the, and just kind of being in that space, it, it was just, the, the experience in itself was uh, life-changing. And, and when I got to, again, when I sat down to write the piece, the piano, it, it, the music kind of came out of me. And mm -hmm. because I was so emotional, I was so embodied all these experiences. And uh, it's like I had to get it out. I had to get that just to mm -hmm. release it. And, and and I'm so grateful for music for to be, have that, um, just to be able to, as an outlet, you know. A release. Um, yes. last, que last question for you, for you, Carlos. In the end, what do you hope people take away from breath once they've once they've heard it it's very simple call to action uh, what's your task what is your what is your your duty what is you all have a gifting um, but what is your your job and and dismantling racism but also being a part of the anti-racist um, system um, and yes my job is music uh, but you know, someone else may have a, a different position, um, a, a seat at the table that will embody um, some change. Mm -hmm. And so my hope is that we, those who listen and are, who are there at the performance, they will be able to um, find some sense of uh, duty, uh, call to action, um, and, and be able to spark some change. The next time we get together, um, I'm going to have to ask you about the Magnificent Seven, but we don't have time. <laughs> we, we are out of time. Uh, Carlos Simon, Grammy-nominated um, Kennedy Center composer in, in residence and composer of Breath for the Minnesota Orchestra, thank you so much for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Thank you, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's edited by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.